In my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. Can't you see the sunshine? Can't you just feel the moonshine? Ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind? Yes, I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. Carolina in My Mind by James Taylor is definitely one of the most recognizable songs about North Carolina. While it never actually specifies North Carolina, and most South Carolinians identify with the song as well, Taylor's roots lead back clearly to the Tar Heel State. James Taylor was actually born in Boston in 1948, but moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina when James was three, and his father took a job at the university there. His father, Isaac, was actually from North Carolina and had attended the University of North Carolina before going to medical school at Harvard. Dr. Taylor would go on to be the dean of the UNC School of Medicine. James Taylor began his music career by playing the cello, but moved on to the guitar when he was 14 and never looked back. Unfortunately, in his late teens, he descended into a state of severe depression for which he would be hospitalized. The time he spent in recovery would focus him and aim him towards his destiny in music. James Taylor moved to New York in 1966 and formed a band called The Flying Machine. They enjoyed some success, but by 1967, Taylor had moved to London to try and make it on his own. Taylor got his big break when a friend of his introduced him to Peter Asher, who was the talent scout for the Beatles' newly formed label, Apple Records. Asher played James Taylor's demo tape for Paul McCartney and George Harrison, and they loved it. Taylor became the first non-British singer on the Apple label. After signing with Apple Records, Taylor took a short vacation to the Mediterranean island of Formentera. While there, he met a Scandinavian girl named Karen, Perhaps the combination of a warm, sunny break from gray and gloomy London, combined with his brief affair with blonde and beautiful Karen, left him homesick for North Carolina. Karen, however briefly, became his muse. Karen, she's a silver sun. You best walk her way and watch it shine, and watch her watch the morning come. A silver tear appearing now, I'm crying, ain't I? Gone to Carolina in my mind. Taylor and Karen parted, never to see each other again, and he returned to London, where he would record his debut self-titled album at Trident Studios in 1968. The Beatles, as it turned out, were recording the White Album in the next studio. When Taylor references a holy host of others standing round me, he is referring to the Beatles. Actually, on Gone to Carolina in My Mind, Paul McCartney is credited on bass, and George Harrison also provided backup vocals, although not credited on the album. Carolina in My Mind was released in December 1968 in England and February 1969 in the United States. The song received high praise and a very favorable review in Rolling Stone. Unfortunately, Taylor had slipped into heroin addiction and was unable to promote the album or tour to support it. Carolina In My Mind topped out at number 118 on the U.S. pop charts.
In fact, most of you have probably never heard that version of the song. In 1969, Taylor moved home to the United States. He cleaned up his act, toured, recorded, and went on to win five Grammys, selling more than 100 million records, and be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But that original version of the song is rarely heard these days. When Taylor went to release a Greatest Hits album in 1976, he had trouble obtaining the licensing rights from Apple Records, and found that, actually, nobody seemed to know where the masters to that album were. In October of 1976, James Taylor recorded a new version at the Sound Factory in Los Angeles. This version was slower and more mature. It featured Taylor on acoustic guitar. This is the version most of us are familiar with. This album sold 11 million copies. Carolina In My Mind is one of James Taylor's most well-known songs. It is a staple of his tour set list and I sang along with it when I saw him perform it live at a show in Vancouver in 2016. I've heard that the students at the University of North Carolina sing it at pep rallies and games and even at graduation. I used to sing it myself on cold Pennsylvania winter nights when I was in college, dreaming of the carefree days of the summers I spent in the Carolinas. And it's the song I sang as I turned my headlights south from West Virginia. Dark and silent late last night, I think I might have heard the highway call. And geese in flight, and dogs that bite, the signs that might be omens say I'm going. I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. I've traveled the country over, stopped and eaten Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. This week, I'm coming to you from the great state of North Carolina. It has been a wonderful few weeks here in the Tar Heel State. I've met some great people, eaten some excellent barbecue, and found some great stories to bring to you today. For more information on me and my journey, be sure to check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Our music this week comes from the wonderful Last Minute Bluegrass Band from Stokes County, North Carolina. You'll hear some background noise because I recorded them live at Pretty's General Store in Danbury. You might also hear some clicking and clacking at some points. That is the sound of people doing flat foot dancing, a type of mountain dancing popular in the state. For more information on Pickin' at Pretty's, head over to their website, prettysgeneralstore.com. P-R-I-D-D-Y-S generalstore.com. The first non-native that we know of who explored present-day North Carolina was Juan Pardo. In 1567, he established Fort San Juan near present-day Morganton. A year later, the fort was destroyed, 
and all but one of its inhabitants were killed. The British arrived in 1584 on tiny Roanoke Island, establishing the first British colony in what is now the United States. While it was called Virginia then, Roanoke is, in present-day, North Carolina. This is a story we will hear in the podcast today. In 1663, King Charles II carved the province of Carolina out of what was then Virginia. He awarded this province to eight noblemen, called the Lord's Proprietors, in thanks for helping him regain the throne after the English Civil War. At that time, there was an already established settlement on the Albemarle Sound. In 1670, another settlement, Charlestown, now Charleston, was established in the south of the province. By the early 1700s, regional differences led to a split of the province into North and South Carolina. In 1774, in New Bern, a group known as the First Provincial Congress met, defying British rule, and voted to send members to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. As tensions between England and the colonies grew, this Provincial Congress continued to meet. As the colonies prepared for the Second Continental Congress, the North Carolina Provincial Congress met for the fourth time, this time in Halifax. Due in part to their distance from Philadelphia and anticipating the discussion to be had there, this fourth provincial congress adopted what we now refer to as the Halifax Resolves. The Halifax Resolves granted permission to the delegates from North Carolina to the Second Continental Congress to vote in favor of independence from Great Britain. The Halifax Resolves approved on April 12, 1776, became the first official action in the American colonies calling for independence. That date can be found on the North Carolina state flag today and is reflected in one of their unofficial mottos, first in freedom. Three months later, the 13 colonies would convene the Second Continental Congress and draft the Declaration of Independence. These acts, in their time, were acts of high treason against the crown, punishable by death. It must have been quite a time to be alive, and quite the men who would sign their names to such an act. Although North Carolina's official state motto would not be adopted until over a hundred years later, it could be certainly used to describe the fierce and rebellious resolve of those men. The motto is one of my favorites, and one which I also believe appropriate to the journey I am currently on. The state motto of North Carolina is Esse Quam Videre. The translation, to be rather than to seem. The year is 1578. Nearly a hundred years have passed since Christopher Columbus sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, and the Spanish have dug in in the New World. The British, under Queen Elizabeth, are trying to establish colonies of their own. Queen Elizabeth has granted a patent for overseas exploration to Humphrey Gilbert, who was to sail to the New World 
and establish a British colony in North America. This original expedition was abandoned, but in 1583, Gilbert sailed to Newfoundland and took possession of the port of St. John for England. He would die on the return journey. Gilbert's half-brother, Sir Walter Raleigh, would take up the cause and would be granted a charter to establish a colony in the New World named Virginia in honor of Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. The plan was to establish a fortified permanent settlement from which they could plunder Spanish treasure ships and search out a fortune of their own. On April 27, 1584, two boats, captained by Arthur Barlow and Philip Amadas, and carrying 40 men, set off towards the west. Aiming north of Spanish Florida, the expedition passed through the protective outer banks and landed on a small island they would call Roanoke, after the group of Carolina Algonquins who lived there. These native people seemed friendly and curious and welcoming to the newcomers. They lived in a world of plenty and survived by a combination of farming, fishing, and hunting. One member of this original expedition was John White, an artist, who was charged with documenting the journey through his illustrations. His work provides much of our understanding of the voyage today. After a few weeks exploring the area and interacting with the Algonquin people, the Englishmen returned home with what they considered very good news about what they had found. Two of the Algonquins, Mantio and Wanchis, traveled with them back to England. On April 9, 1585, a second expedition to the New World set off from England. This expedition included five ships and perhaps 600 men. The two leaders of this expedition were Sir Richard Grenville, a cousin of Sir Walter Raleigh, and Ralph Lane. John White also joined this voyage and continued his artistic documentation. When they landed on Roanoke, they began to dig in and build houses and a fort. This much larger contingent met with concern by the Algonquins. The English carried diseases with them, which the natives had no immunity to, and soon many were sick and dying. The English also lacked enough food and supplies, and soon their demands on the Algonquins exceeded what the natives had to spare. Tensions rose. Grenville decided to return to England for supplies, and left Ralph Lane and 108 men to continue the work of establishing a colony. The winter was probably a hard one for everyone in Roanoke. By spring, the chief of the Algonquin people, Wingina, wanted to attack the settlers. They got word of the attack and went on the offensive, killing Wingina and destroying any hope for good relations with the natives. In June 1586, British Captain Sir Francis Drake sailed into Roanoke to check on his countrymen. Since Grenville had not yet returned from England, and things had gone from bad to worse, the colonists took this opportunity to escape and left Roanoke for England. When Grenville did return, soon thereafter, he found Roanoke abandoned. He left 15 men to maintain the claim of Britain on the area and returned to England himself. Sir Walter Raleigh was determined to colonize the New World, and in 1587 he sent a third group across the Atlantic. 
This group was neither military nor scientific, but settlers sent to establish a permanent colony in Virginia. These colonists numbered over a hundred and included women and children. Raleigh sent as the leader of this expedition, John White, the artist who had spent as much time in Roanoke as anyone and had at least a basic understanding of the Algonquin language. White took with him his pregnant daughter, Eleanor, and her husband, Ananias Dare. Their goal was to establish a colony well north of Roanoke, somewhere on the Chesapeake Bay. They were charged, however, with stopping off at Roanoke to check on the 15 men left there the previous year. When they arrived at Roanoke, the captain of the fleet refused to take them further and put them off on the island. They found no real trace of the 15 men, only a few scattered bones. Within days of their arrival, hostilities began with the Algonquins, with violence committed by both sides. The colonists knew that they had arrived after the planting season, and food would be scarce through the winter. With relations with the natives quickly deteriorating, the British could not depend on them for help. Infighting began among the colonists. This is not what they believed they had signed up for. They began to press John White to return to England for more supplies to get them through the winter. Since he was in charge, White finally agreed. Before he left, though, his daughter gave birth to a baby girl, Virginia Dare, the first British child born in the New World on August 18, 1587. White promised to return as soon as he could and asked that if they ran into trouble to carve a Maltese cross into a tree as a sign. White returned to England, but by this time England and Spain were at war. There were no ships to spare for White to return to Roanoke. He didn't give up, but each attempt he made ended in failure. It would be almost exactly three years before John White finally returned to the New World. When he disembarked at Roanoke, though, it was not into his daughter or granddaughter's arms as he had hoped. What he found was what buildings there had been had been taken down, and the island was completely deserted. He found no one, but also no graves or bones or signs of a struggle. It was simply abandoned. He searched for a carving of a cross, their agreed-on signal of distress, but didn't find one. Instead, he found one word carved into a post by the remains of the fort. Croatoan. Croatoan was a small settlement on nearby Hatteras Island. White hoped the colonists had moved on to settle there. When they went looking again, they came up empty. A hurricane was brewing off the coast of what is today North Carolina, and White's ship was forced to sail back to England. White would never return to the New World, but several expeditions would attempt to find out what happened to this lost colony. To date, there is no conclusive evidence as to their fate. We remember these people as brave pioneers who set off in good faith with the promise of a better life. Recounting this story, I can't help but think of the what-ifs. What if the 1585 expedition hadn't destroyed friendly relations with the Algonquins? What if the ships that brought the colonists had actually taken them to their intended destination 
which couldn't have been more than a day or two north of Roanoke? Or what if the Queen had been able to spare just one boat to send John White back to the colony, a part of which, even now, is named for her? What if Virginia Dare had grown up and served as a living symbol of the ties between the royal crown and the New World? Would the entire course of the history of the British colonies have changed? Maybe. These are the questions I pondered as I wandered through the woods of what is now Fort Raleigh National Historic Site, in a tiny corner of a tiny island that once represented the entirety of British influence in what would, 200 years later, become the United States. What if? Have you ever enjoyed a cold, refreshing Brad's drink? I'll bet you have, and didn't even know it. Caleb Davis Bradham was born in Chincapin, North Carolina, on May 27, 1867. Bradham went to the University of North Carolina, and then on to the University of Maryland School of Medicine. While studying to be a doctor, Bradham worked as an apprentice in a local pharmacy. Things were going well for Caleb Bradham. Unfortunately, in 1890, when Caleb was 23 and had not yet finished medical school, his father's business went under. Bradham was forced to move home to North Carolina. He worked for a year as a teacher until he had saved enough money to return to his own studies. When he went back to the University of Maryland, though, he had chosen a different path and entered their school of pharmacy. Upon graduation, Bradham moved back to North Carolina and settled in the town of New Bern. This is where he decided to open a pharmacy of his own. There on the corner of Middle and Pollock, Bradham's pharmacy opened for business. It's still there today. Bradham's pharmacy, like most pharmacies of the time, had a soda fountain in it. Soda was all the rage in the 1890s. You see, for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, people had touted the benefits of drinking mineral water. Mineral water, in many places, is naturally effervescent, and people had been trying to find ways to carbonate still water for a long time. Finally, in the late 18th century, Johann Jacob Schwepp developed a method for carbonation. He founded Schwepp's company way back in 1783 in Geneva. Schwepp still sells carbonated beverages today. And then, in 1888, a man named Jacob Bauer, a pharmacist himself, created a machine that could produce carbonated water. His company, Liquid Carbonic, began producing these soda fountains, and a whole industry was born. Soda fountains were used in pharmacies to produce tonics, which could cure minor ailments like headaches or indigestion. The active ingredients in these tonics might surprise you, but before the Harrison Act of 1914, cocaine, heroin, and opium were all in regular use. 
you didn't even need a prescription. Even Sears and Roebuck sold cocaine and heroin in their mail order catalog. Boy, you really could get anything from Sears back then. Got a headache? Cocaine will fix you right up. Bad nerves at the end of the day? A little opium will take care of that. The pharmacist would put these medicines into a tall glass and add sugar and flavorings to make it palatable and top it up with some freshly pumped soda water. Down the hatch and off you went. Today, people stop at the coffee shop on the way to work. Back in the 1890s, a lot of them would go to the soda shop instead. A quick cocaine cocktail could take care of, quote, that tired feeling, end quote. Boy, those were some times. No wonder we remember them as the gay 90s. Some people would come back several times a day for a little pick-me-up, passed to you right over the counter. Caleb Bradham, it was said, made some delicious concoctions. His most famous, though, the one we've all tried, didn't use any of these ingredients. It was all natural. Bradham would mix up some sugar, some vanilla, a little caramel, a touch of lemon oil and nutmeg, and a few other things. Top it up with fresh soda and hand it over. It was supposed to help with indigestion, but people really liked the taste of it. Everyone simply called it Brad's drink. Brad's drink was a huge seller, and Caleb Bradham knew he was onto something. He wanted to bottle Brad's drink and sell it to a bigger market than tiny New Bern, North Carolina. And he did. It is now sold and recognized the world over. But before he went big, Bradham changed the name. I guess Brad's drink wasn't catchy enough. He wanted people to know, from its name, what it did. This magic elixir, after all, not only tasted good, but was good for fighting indigestion, too. But Caleb Bradham was a trained pharmacist. When he changed the name on August 28, 1898, to the name we all know today, he chose the more technical term for indigestion, dyspepsia. The name he chose? Pepsi-Cola. Since the dawn of our existence, man has been fascinated with flight. To take to the skies like the birds was something reserved for the gods or the afterlife. Is it any wonder that so many cultures found a heaven in the skies? Ah, to fly. To fly is something that people have always dreamed of. But until only recently, it was just that. A dream. In the 1780s, the first manned hot air balloons floated into history. Seventy years later, men were building gliders and advancing our understanding of aeronautics. And finally, on December 17, 1903, at 10.35 in the morning, the first powered, sustained, controlled, manned flight was airborne. The people responsible 
were two high school dropouts from Dayton, Ohio. The location, a remote sand dune on a narrow island off the coast of North Carolina. Wilbur and Orville Wright were two of seven children born to Milton and Susan Wright. Born four years apart, they spent their early years in Indiana before their parents moved to Dayton, Ohio in 1884. When the boys were young, their father brought home a toy for them. This simple toy had a propeller and, when wound up with a rubber band, would fly across the room, much to the boys' delight. From that day on, this simple toy would spark the imagination, which led to the obsession, which would, in turn, lead to the world's first airplane. Wilbur would complete four years of high school, but an abrupt family move kept him from receiving his diploma. So perhaps it is unfair to refer to him as a dropout. Orville, on the other hand, left voluntarily after his junior year. The boys designed and built their own printing press, and in 1889, 22-year-old Wilbur and 18-year-old Orville began a printing business. They launched a weekly newspaper, the West Side News, then a daily called The Evening Item. When these didn't work out, the Wrights focused on printing other people's work, a far more profitable venture. Around this time, a new kind of bicycle came onto the market. Called the safety bicycle, it was similar to the bikes we ride today. It would replace the penny-farthing bicycle. The large front-wheel, tiny-back-wheeled bicycle favored today by hipsters and circus performers. Because these safety bicycles were much easier to ride, a national craze took off, and the Wright brothers capitalized on it. In 1892, they opened the Wright Cycle Exchange to sell, fix, and repair bicycles. By 1896, they had designed and built their own brand and began selling and manufacturing these bicycles. In May of 1896, Samuel Langley successfully launched several heavier-than-air, unmanned, steam-powered, fixed-wing models. These launches caught the world's and the Wright's attention as we all came one step closer to manned flight. Perhaps it was possible. The Wright brothers began learning as much as they could about aeronautics and began drawing up their own designs. Their understanding of balance from their bicycle business was clearly beneficial. They experimented with kites and gliders and finally built a full-size glider to try out. But where could they go to test it? They chose a set of sand dunes called the Kill Devil Hills, just south of Kitty Hawk in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. This area had high dunes and a soft, sandy landing area, plus consistent winds and privacy from a curious press. For the next three years, Orville and Wilbur Wright would make the long journey from Ohio to North Carolina many times. Their glider designs continued to evolve, and by 1902, 
they had successfully tested their three-axis control, which accounted for lateral roll, up and down pitch, and side-to-side -side yaw. On March 23, 1903, the Wrights applied for a patent for a flying machine. Though not as glamorous as what came next, it was their breakthrough in the control which made their design so special. In 1903, Orville and Wilbur built the Wright Flyer One. A lightweight spruce frame was covered with cotton muslin fabric. They designed and built a lightweight gasoline-powered engine in their bicycle shop. They also designed and built their own lightweight propellers. Their design had the right wing four inches shorter than the left to compensate for the engine weight. Finally, they felt they were ready and transported the 40-foot, 605-pound flyer to the Kill Devil Hills. While camped there, their propeller shafts broke several times, requiring two trips back to Dayton. And remember, if you can somehow forget in the midst of this particular story, that this was a time before air travel. This was no short journey. Finally, on December 14, 1903, the Wright brothers were ready to test their new machine. They flipped a coin to see who would fly it. Wilbur won the toss. He boarded the Wright flyer and took his position. They started the engine, and Orville helped guide the flyer down a launching rail. Just as it took off, Wilbur oversteered, and the flyer stalled, climbed too steeply, and crashed to the ground. After repairing the minor damage, they were ready to try again. It was December 17th, and though the winds were a little high, they gave it a go. This time, Orville climbed behind the controls. At 10.35 a.m., while his brother helped and five locals looked on, the right flyer slid down the launch rail, lifted off, and flew into history. This initial flight lasted only 12 seconds and flew for 120 feet, but it had flown. The brothers were ecstatic and quickly moved to try it again. Taking turns, they flew it three more times that day. Wilbur's second flight, the final one, flew 852 feet in 59 seconds. Elated by their success, the brothers watched on in horror as a huge gust of wind came up, rolled the flyer over, and damaged it beyond repair. Although it had been the first airplane to fly, the Wright Flyer One would never fly again. The Wrights packed up the pieces and their other supplies and headed home. The rest, as they say, is history. Sadly, Wilbur would die nine years later in 1912 of typhoid. He was only 45. Orville, on the other hand, lived into old age. He saw their invention really take off. He met Amelia Earhart. He met Charles Lindbergh after his famous transatlantic flight. He met Howard Hughes and flew with him in a Lockheed Constellation. He was still alive on October 14th 1947, when a young pilot from Myra, West Virginia, Chuck Yeager, broke the sound barrier. 
Orville Wright died January 30th, 1948, at the age of 76. Although neither was alive at the time, I'm sure both Wright brothers would be thrilled to know that in July 1969, two pieces of the Wright Flyer were on board the lunar landing module as it touched down for the first time on the surface of the moon. The ingenuity of the Wright brothers is commemorated in two wonderful national park sites, one in Dayton, Ohio, where the Wright Flyer was conceived and built, and one in the Kill Devil Hills of North Carolina, where she flew. I've been to both sites, and both are excellent. Although the Wright Flyer would never fly again, it was reassembled and hangs from the ceiling in the National Air and Space Museum in my hometown of Washington, D.C. It hangs there to remind us of what is possible when we work hard and follow our dreams. From the time I was little, it has inspired me, as I'm sure it has inspired countless others, that anything is possible, that the sky truly is the limit. Nearly a foot of snow had fallen overnight in Baltimore, and the men were probably happy to get out of town and head south. It was Monday, March 2nd, 1914, and the then minor league Baltimore Orioles boarded a train bound for Fayetteville, North Carolina. Most of their spring training would be, as it is now, in Florida. But in 1914, Fayetteville businessman and former Baltimore resident Hyman Fleischman convinced his friend, Orioles manager Jack Dunn, to spend a few weeks in Fayetteville first. Fleischman's promise of free lodging at his hotel, the Lafayette, probably helped his case significantly. The team arrived on March 3rd to torrential downpours in Fayetteville. The weather was not conducive to playing baseball, so the team spent time practicing in the local armory. They even played an exhibition game against the local high school. The weather finally cleared on Saturday, March 7th, and the Orioles were ready to take to the field. Leaving the Lafayette Hotel, which sat at the corner of Donaldson and Hay Streets, the team walked almost a mile to their practice field at the Cape Fear Fairgrounds. After warming up his team, manager Jack Dunn split them in half and prepared for an intra-squad scrimmage. With the buzzards on one side and the sparrows on the other, the players took to the field for the seven-inning game in front of a crowd of about 200 locals. The crowd undoubtedly enjoyed themselves as the two teams battled it out, exchanging runs in the highly offensive game. Midway through the game, with the sparrows in the field and the buzzards at bat, their newly acquired rookie shortstop stepped up to the plate for only the second time. The 19-year-old kid was a Baltimore native whom Dunn had signed after watching him pitch at the St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys. He stepped into the batter's box and took his stance. The pitcher threw him a fastball, and he belted it. He would later recall that hit, quote, I hit it as I hit all others, by taking a good gander at the pitch as it came up to the plate. 
twisting my body into a backswing and hitting it as hard as I could, end quote. As hard as he could was as far as anyone in Fayetteville had ever seen, or at least that's what the local paper claimed the next day. The fans gawked at the ball as it flew deep, deep into right field. Most would estimate the ball went between 350 and 400 feet. The batter circled the bases and was headed back to the dugout before right fielder Billy Morissette even picked it up. The crowd of just 200 onlookers cheered and cheered for the rookie shortstop. It was a hit I'm sure none of them would ever forget and a story they would tell for the rest of their lives. The kid that made that hit would come in to pitch the last two innings of the game. His squad, the Buzzards, went on to win the game by a score of 15-9. to He went on to play for the Orioles for the next four months. But a kid that can hit like that doesn't stay in the minor leagues very long. On July 4th of that same year, 1914, he was acquired by the Boston Red Sox. He would go on to play professional baseball for 21 years, retiring at the age of 40 in 1935. He hit 714 home runs in his career and had 2,213 runs batted in. He won seven World Series crowns and was honored in the inaugural class inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Of that first home run in his first professional game, in a tiny corner of North Carolina, he would say, quote, I got to some bigger places than Fayetteville after that, but darn few as exciting, end quote. The 19-year-old kid who made the longest hit ever seen by Fayetteville fans was named after his father, George Herman Ruth. The world, of course, knew him as Babe. That's it for the podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or almost anywhere you get your podcasts. Please take a minute to rate and review it, and be sure you tell your friends. Next time, more stories from the Tar Heel State, as I make my way across southern North Carolina back to the coast. As mentioned at the top of the show, our music tonight came from the wonderful Last Minute Bluegrass Band, recorded live at Pretty's General Store in Danbury, North Carolina. Find out more at prettiesgeneralstore.com. To find out more about me or give me ideas for stories, or just to get in touch, come on over to my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Twitter at milestogotweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Background music comes from Kevin McLeod over at incomtechmusic.com and sound effects from the great folks over at freesfx.com. Our theme music from the incomparable Memphis Slim. Until next time, this is your host, Mike Harding. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. Thank you.
I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every. 